I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Well, the caddy's out of the bag, the borders are pretty much all open, all of you people are bloody booking your trips overseas and finally moving to Europe for a 12-month gap year or wanting to visit Italy and do all the touristy things, and we can do that now. And it's amazing to look back and think of, you know, it was just a crazy couple of years of no travel, so I know a lot of you are getting out there. But what we're going to talk about in this episode, one of the topics that is, we're going to talk about how do we manage money? if we do move overseas temporarily. And we answer a listener question about this topic, but I just want to encourage everyone to really get out there and see the world because it can all change in an instant. So if you are building your financial life and travel is part of that and is part of your goals, you've got a decision to make, right? Because we don't want to do it with debt. So it could be, well, I do want to save for a new house. I do want to save for an investment property. I do want to save for a wedding. I do want to travel overseas. I'll say it before and I'll say it again. The problem is we live in reality and it might mean that we can only pick one and do that first. But we'll talk about that in this episode a little bit more. But anyway, I'll segue into a little uh, a little advert. And thanks, Tal, so much for... Uh, you know, paying some salaries over here and really, you know, more than that, getting behind financial literacy. Because when a brand's... Anyway, you get me, guys. Like, brands don't have to spend money in this, but they choose to. And part of their remit is financial literacy. But I'm outstaying my welcome and I want to get on with the show. But um, we understand that life insurance claims are made during an incredibly emotional and difficult time. With many aspects and emotions to manage, moving forward isn't always straightforward. That's a good little Instagram slogan, that. TAL, and that's T-A-L, has a dedicated grief support service available for immediate family members of a loved one who has become terminally ill or passed away and for customers who may have recently been diagnosed with a terminal illness. Whatever you enjoy, TAL's grief support service is there if you need it. TAL, ensuring this Australian life. Wow, actually, this stuff's new to me. I didn't know they did that. I haven't heard of any other insurance companies doing that. So that's awesome. Anyway, let's get into the episode today. G'day, John Pigeon. G'day, Glenn. Host of the My Millennial Property Podcast. It's a great little banger over there for those who are interested in property. We've got a question here from Air Aragon. How can I give financial advice to my parents without upsetting them? Uh, you might not be able to. I grew up seeing them struggle with money, e.g. debt, loans, etc. And now that I'm older and learning to understand money, I want to have that conversation with them. I mean, what do you do, John? Like you do a lot of these clarity calls with people and often, you know, parents can come into it if they're doing guarantee on property or if they're gifting money or if they're you know, still living with them or influencing them. I mean, 
this could be one of those things where it might not be possible, but what do you reckon? Yeah, I think the first thing that sprung to mind when I looked at this is, are they asking for it? Mm. Is if they're not asking for it, it's very hard to tell someone what to do, right? <laughs> then if they're not open and embrace embracing of that. So I, we, we can't tell people. We've got to ask them key questions that lead them to the thought process of, oh, hang on a minute, maybe I need some help in this space. Um, are they happy where they're at? If they're not, okay, what can we do about it? And what action steps do we need to take to, I suppose, progression, progress in the financial sense? Um, yeah, really, really tough one. Depends on personalities and generally speaking, when family members try to give advice to other family members, doesn't end so well. So, It's funny because you talk about like, you know, on the other side of the coin where family members who are well-meaning give really bad advice mm. around either property ownership or career advice or whatnot, but which is fine. But I think for air, like the best thing you can do in your life is model how you can be financially responsible. You can talk to your parents like, hey, I'm buying this car. I'm buying it with cash because- mm. I've listened to the My Millennial Money podcast. I'm in yeah. the Facebook group. I've read Glenn's book, all that stuff. Mm. And I just don't need debt in my life. Or it's around, look, I've got these financial goals or I'm contributing more to my super. Oh, who's your super with dad? Mm. That's right. And this is the whole thing. Like You can just chat with your parents about stuff. You don't have to ram crap down their throat. But yeah, I think it's just being a conversation. You're not kicking down the door and saying, do this, I know better. They're probably like, well, I wiped yeah. your freaking ass yeah. for <laughs> three years, so let's just chill yeah. out there. And it might be a bit of a, a proud thing as well, like mum and dad should be financially secure. They don't want to drop their ego to their to their kids. So it's a really tread with caution conversation where it's just, yeah, as you said, just asking questions and being interested generally in how, they, uh, how they're managing their finances but depending on the age, there's only a certain amount you can do to make an impact mm. you know, when you're older, right? Like when you're like people come to us when they're late 50s, early 60s. Now they may have 30 years left of living, but when it comes to banks lending them money, they're, they're not that keen later in life. So there's, uh, there's only certain things that can be done at that age. Mm. And maybe, yeah, I just think it is just more that conversation and you know, tell them that you listen to this podcast or, you know, if they're over age 55, like jump on and subscribe to the Retire Right podcast. We're launching that in June or something. So, yeah, you don't have to be the one to change them, but you can be the one that can lead them. But it's that old horse to water thing. Yeah, that's You can right. splash it, you can push it in and all that, but yeah. if it's not thirsty. That's right. It ain't. Drinking, yeah. the the subtle the subtle gift on the on the kitchen table is a good one. Yeah, um, maybe wrap it up or <laughs> make a nice note. Yeah, it's uh, it's just wild, but yeah, lead by example in this instance. Like, set things up the way you want to do it. Uh, but as you said, you want to have a conversation with them. Maybe you could have the conversation like, "Hey guys, can we at some point?" And this is actually now that we see we. We dig deep on these questions, right? Mm. Maybe the conversation is, hey, mum and dad, you know, you're not getting any younger. I'm not getting any younger. 
I've just set up my wills and estate plan. I'm looking at doing this stuff. Mm. Where's my inheritance? Where's my money? <laughs> no. <laughs> it, it would be more like, can you let me know where your will is located? Mm. Oh, we don't have a will. Okay. Well, um, can we get that sorted? Mm. Only because if you guys fall off the perch, yeah. you got the house, you're making my life Hard. Yeah. This is what I learned about wills and estates. Yeah. yeah. So I think it is more that. And what about we set, make sure, you know, mum and dad, you've got power of attorney over each other and maybe it steps down to me and my brother or my sister. Yeah. So maybe it is the angle of estate planning. Yeah, it could be. And the other, the other part like we'd like to do with our parents is go to them for advice. Mm. Hey, mum and dad, having some cash flow issues or I'm thinking about investing, what are your thoughts? And almost reverse engineer the process, see what they say and enter the conversation. (laughs) It was funny. I I haven't seen you for a couple of weeks, John, but um, I went, I took mum and dad to a financial advisor Um, and I went there because I knew the advisor and I know their situation and I know enough to be dangerous with retirees and pre-retirees. Anyway, I was a very good boy. I just sat there, you know, kept my mouth shut. Wow. And you How know, long for? It was a good hour. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I gave some feedback. <laughs> so, you know, the advisor asked mum and dad a question. They answered and then they looked at me and I'm like, well, I've got a view. <laughs> but I'm going to keep it. No, I said, no, you need to sell, sell the freaking house. You're not keeping any investment property if you move into Queensland. Like, but anyway, it was just, Yeah. Maybe have that discussion around the estate planning. But um, it was what I was getting at. The funny part was, John, we're walking out of the office because they met here and we drove down. And mum and dad, mum was like, oh, is that what you used to do? I was like, what did you think I bloody did? So, yeah, it was just, it was a really fun exercise. And uh, I think as our parents get older, Mm. it's only uh, polite to say, hey, if you need uh, power of attorney or if we can help, uh, we need to be involved in this discussion. Yeah. Um, I was disappointed that mum and dad didn't have a hidden couple of million dollars somewhere <laughs> to give it. to me. So that was a bit annoying. Maybe so, they left it for your sister. Yeah, probably. Rowini uh, Ray says, planning super and finances if moving abroad temporarily. So super gets put on hold essentially, doesn't it? Well, and this is the thing. So temporarily, let's let's just define temporarily. We'll go temporarily three months to five years, for example. So, I'm going to go overseas within either a three-month stint or a one-year or a five-year, then I'll come back home. So, temporary in this discussion, we'll say it's not a permanent thing. Now, just in relation to your superannuation, Rowini, what I would probably do is because you can't take your super with you, so you're an Australian resident, you're a citizen, you've got your super here. If you exited the country, you used to be able to say, give me my super and cash it out and say, oh, I'm now living in the UK, I'm now living in Singapore or the US or wherever, right? Yes. But what was happening, people were then becoming of pension age, so age 65, and mm-hmm. like, oh, let's go back and just retire in Australia. We've got a pension there that we can get. Which you can do, but the government are like, well, because people were taking all their retirement savings, spending it overseas, and then moving back, and then being self, not mm. self-reliant, mm. 
Um, they put a stop to it. Yeah. So, if you did move overseas permanently, you would have to wait until you're the age over 60 and not working, whatever the law is in Australia, to release your money and use it. So, that's kind of that. But temporarily, what I'd be doing is when you're working overseas, your employer overseas won't be contributing to your Australian superannuation fund. So, it might be just worth giving you super fund a call, making sure your email address is up to date, they've got your tax file number, you know, your parents' postal address or somewhere that's just make sure all your details are up to date and just check that the money is invested in line with your risk profile and goals. Now, while we can't give personal financial advice on this podcast, what we can say is, well, I can't speak on behalf of John, but I often do. (laughs) What we can say is, I fundamentally believe if you're under 50 years old, okay, you've at least got 10 years because if you're 50 years old, you've got 10 years until it's a condition of release, you know, stop working, you know, um, early, you know, medical events and all that aside. So, in the main, if you're under 50 years old, anyone, whether you're moving overseas or not or living in Australia, we know that you can't touch the money for at least 10 years, basically. So, the argument is, well, if I can't actually touch the money within the next 10 years, it needs to be invested for growth for the long term. So, I think there's a strong argument that anyone under age 50 probably should look at having a superannuation investment account that's in growth slash high growth. Yep, I would agree with that. another way to say it is if you're under 50 years old, and this is on the proviso that you understand how investments work and this is why I keep mentioning the book because there's new listeners all the time and I wrote a book just to show people how all this stuff works. So, thank you for those who have bought it and are sick of me saying all that, but we've got to, you know, cut this chicken two ways of new listeners and you old people that have been here forever and, you know, strap in and all that. But Life members. So, within all that, if you're under 50, you don't want conservative provided you're education, educated. So, as part of the housekeeping, call the super fund or log in, make sure your contact details are up to date. Yeah. Make sure that um, you log into your MyGov account and that there is a link there so you can actually see the fund uh, just so we know where it is and you know, make sure that your employer has been paying contributions. You can look through the transactions. It's getting harder to obfuscate paying that now that it's all linked up if you're an employer, so pay people super. And then go, look, I'm 26 years old and I might have X amount in my super I'm going overseas temporarily. Well, we know it's under five years overseas. I'm not going to be contributing. I need to make sure that it's invested for growth. Yep. So, that's on the super side. And they may or may not be earning super over there. Yeah. So, they, you know, if depending on what country you're in or whatever the laws are and whatnot, you know, if you're enrolled in a, a, a retirement savings scheme in another country, well- when you leave that country, you'll have to play by those rules. They might let you withdraw it and cash it out. Yep. They might not. So, so finances, Rohini. Probably, again, looking at the the term of how long we're going to be there and saying, well, 
how much am I working out of that period or intend to and then what's it going to cost me to live? Bored, my sleeping on a couch, uh, how much am I partying, how much am I travelling, all those sort of things and and have a rough estimate like you would here locally, right? So I think that's the first part of the finances, understanding you don't want to have to cut your trip short because you've got uh, lack of cash flow. Um, conversely, if you're going over there for an experience, not necessarily just to work. You don't want to be working all the time and no joy of travel or experiencing other things. What are you thinking? Yeah, it's, I love these questions because, you know, you might be moving overseas temporarily, whether it's three months, a year, five years, right? The fundamentals of money management are the same. You're earning an income if you're working abroad you've got expenses. So you need to balance your own, your own personal budget and spending plan. The caveat is I don't want you to go overseas and start a new life if you're in a financial mess over here and you don't have a decent job to go to over there. So again, just because you're living over the other side of the world or here, you want to be out of consumer debt. You want to have a good cash buffer and because you're moving overseas, you just want to make sure that you do, if possible, can remain a little bit cash heavy mm. because, you know, there could be a medical event that you might need to cover. So, I think it's just, it's general housekeeping, like the sound financial house foundations, cashed up debt free, spending plan in place. You know, if you've got a property here in Australia or kids or whatever, you might make sure your will and estate planning's done, your life insurance and all that stuff. Yeah. So, the, I think the only carve out is just be cash heavy if you, you know, because you might need to pay a month of rent up front and a month bond over there or something like that. Yeah. Uh, so, it, it really is, um, yeah, you said the word planning, super any finances, if moving abroad temporarily, you entered it planning. <laughs> like, yeah. you just don't yeah. rock up tomorrow and. Yeah. And I think over the years, we've, we've answered this question in a number of different ways and we come to the same conclusion or very similar in the sense that worst case is we want to be able to get back home if we need to. So mm. we've got either a return airfare paid for or we've got the funds, as you said, cash heavy to be able to do that because likelihood of coming back for a, a wedding or, dare I say, a death um, may be in the next two to five years if you're over there. So, mm. But it's a good thing because, you know, the borders are opening back up now and we're all starting to travel again. And Airports are full. Airports are full and planes are taking off and all that stuff. There's a question here from Lucy Redding. Are side hustles taxed? Damn sure. Yeah. So a couple of things there. Like often a question is, uh, is my hobby taxed? So, you know, if I make quilts and I sell the odd quilt for $8 or $80, whatever that is, and it's very ad hoc and it's just a bit of a, you know, oh, I I sit down on a Sunday night uh, and before maths comes on, I'll do some quilting and then, you know, <laughs> do all that stuff, right? And then I might make a quilt every two months and then put it up on my Facebook. Yeah, who wants one of Glenny's quilts, yeah. you know? And then I get my 100 bucks or $80 or whatever the quilt is and just, you know, a bit of cash. That That's more of a hobby. Mm. Sure, I could say it's a side hustle, but it's not really – I'm not hanging my life off it no. in terms of my income. So, so you're that, saying you can avoid tax by selling one quilt a week. 
Well, well, this is what you've come into, John, because I said ad hoc quilt. <laughs> yes. Now, you've gone into this, I'm doing it one week. I'm consistent. Mm. It's starting to- Hustle. It's starting to hustle. And in terms of uh, the ATO, and you can just Google like ATO hobbies or something like that. Mm. They basically say, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, mm. it's probably John Pigeon a or a duck. Yeah, a swan, a black duck. Um, so, what you need to look at in that, do you have a separate bank account for it? Do you constantly receive income from it? Is there structure in it? And even if it is only one a month, well, is that consistent? And I think it will just become apparent the busier you get. You're like, oh, bloody, this side hustle, it's it's really taking off. Well, yeah, it's not a hobby anymore because yeah. you're starting to plan around it. So, basically, what then happens is you'll need an ABN, Australian Business Number, you can get them online, Australian Business Register, I think. Mm-hmm. Is that yep, what it is? It is. Yep. I don't mm-hmm. have to Google that. And then basically what happens, you become a sole trader. So, at the end of the financial year, and I'm just going to draw it, there's like a funnel. And at the bottom of the funnel, I'm drawing a, a photo of a person and that person is at the bottom of the funnel. Now, the top of the funnel, I'm drawing two arrows in that funnel. The first arrow is my normal job. That income goes in there and then the other funnel is my side hustle income. And then in terms of tax tax time, at the bottom of that funnel, all that income comes and sits on my own ITR, income tax return. And there'll be a separate thing. There'll be on the first page, like the employer name, employer ABN, and there'll be a, like a, a sole trader, self-employed section on another part of the tax return. So, all the money funnels down to you as a person and then what they do is they say, okay, well, you've earned X amount. We know part of that income has had tax taken away. You've earned X amount. Based on that earning, you need to pay X amount of tax. So, you might then have a tax bill. Mm. So, it's often, you know, when you are starting a side hustle, putting 20 to 30% tax away each sale. Yeah. in a different account because when you throw it all in the funnel at the end of the year, at the bottom, you're standing under it and all that money's reconciled on your personal tax return. Yeah, so what you're saying is don't go and spend all the all the money you earn from that side hustle um, and there's lots of ins and outs with that. Can we claim the running expenses of that business now that we've got an ABN? Do we set up as a company? Therefore, that's 30% tax as opposed to your personal tax and retain some money in the company. And that can go on forever, can't it, in terms of the options there. But um, generally speaking, are side hustles taxed? Yes, if it looks like we are running a business. So, just while you're doing that, I'm actually, guys, I'm pretty much a big deal now. And I'm on TikTok at Get Invested with Glenn. Wow. And, you know, one of my videos, it had 689 views, guys. It's unbelievable. I am famous. How many were yours? Uh, 600. <laughs> but I, I just want to play this because it's a quick thing around side hustles. And let's see what from, it says. From TikTok. From TikTok, hang on. <laughs> I only think you should do a side hustle for four reasons. Number one, you've got debt, consumer debt. You use the side hustle to clear the debt. Number two, you've got a short-term goal you want to smash. Number three, you're moving from uh, a job to your own job. And number four, it's a hobby. So, there you go. Good tunes. The, the, 
the four reasons why you would get a side hustle. Because I don't believe, John, we need to run out and get a side hustle just for the sake of it. No. It needs to be strategic. Yeah, and I've always... We've got to be paying down debt. We need to be attacking a goal. We need to be transitioning to self-employment longer term. Mm. Or say out loud, it's actually a hobby. I'm not really doing it for the money. I enjoy it. I'll make money, declare it. But we just have to be very clear that this hustle culture doesn't creep in and bend you over and spank you when you're not actually that way inclined. Yeah, and detract from what your nine to five is. Mm. And also, as I said, doing it for the money. Like I associate side hustle with I'm actually passionate about something and I want to pursue it and Mm. scratch this itch and if it makes me money, great. I'll give it two years and and then um, assess it from there. Yeah, so I think it's just a – it really is being – uh, strategic, I think is what I'm saying in every area of our life. Yeah. And if you can do something on the side and make some money, just make sure that you're enjoying it. Make sure that it's not a detriment to your other parts of your life. Mm. Like can you use that same energy to put more value in at work yes. while you're at work. So then you've got more free time at home. That's, I guess, all I'm saying. Just be a bit strategic. Yeah. But we'll never jump on here and say, don't do something on the side. No. We're just saying, make sure you're clear about what you're doing and why you're doing it. Yeah. Good question. So, thanks for that, Lucy. We might pay the light bill now and we'll be back right after this. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's a bit of a community corner type segment. And we ask in the Facebook group, random questions that we read out on the podcast. Mm. So the question is, what is one non-negotiable when looking for property? Have you got some? Very good one. Angela Lang says, windows that open and close freely. That's a very good. Uh, I've been to so many open homes where the windows don't budge. takes a lot of manpower to open and close them. have had shoulder echoes, blah, blah, blah. Preferred not to have to pay for window maintenance immediately. Emily Wallace. Hey. Group expert. 
She grew back, so is she? She is. She's the host of the My Millennial Property Podcast along with Johnny Boy Pidge. Correct. And she says a bath. That's it. Love it. Yep. Baths are pretty good. Uh, Eliza Pringle says, not in an estate where every house looks the same. And that's an important one. That's that's weird because sometimes like you go to different estates and there's covenants on the estate yes. where you've got to have this, you've got to have that. And I get it to mm. a point, but you know they can look... And particularly new estates where they don't put many trees on the street. Like yeah. I like living around here. Like we've got banksias on the sidewalk and yes. the you know black cockatoos come and all the native birds and it's really beautiful. Mm. But I think that's a, a good one because yeah. you've got to actually enjoy where you live. Yeah, totally. And, and I think when you've got a bird's eye view of it, they all look more or less identical. The facade on the street, however, might be slightly different. Mm. There's variances of it, mm. but also there's so many variables in general in each estate, how many builders are allowed in there to build. And if there's only one builder, generally they've got three or four designs and that's it. So, yeah, cookie cutter. So that's a good one. Meg's Watts, storage, and I'm on to that one. Mm. Shannon Marie Healy, she basically said, after going through a scare with the floods and you know taking all the houses – that's really front of mind about how it could affect um, her home and her future and that's a real thing, isn't it? It is. Absolutely it is. Uh, Kylie Haynes said, a decent-sized block of land. The house slash structure can always be fixed slash changed slash rebuilt but you can never make the block of land any bigger. Yes, that's true. You can change the asset but you can't change the location. My dream home has an underground car Car park. park. Yeah, how boss is that? That is boss. Uh, and, and we'll finish up with and it. Bossly. And bossly. <laughs> Very costly bossly. Terry Crawford said a separate toilet from the bathroom. That's convenient with a growing family and all that stuff. Daniel Inglis, and thanks, mate. You're. A, I always see your name in the group and in the Glen James Spending Plan Facebook group, so thanks for your support over the years, Daniel. No mortgage stress. Far enough from friends and family so that my introvert brain feels like <laughs> I can't be blindsided by pop-ins. <laughs> I think we met him at a tour, didn't we? Uh, sure. Sounds like I did. Yeah. Any well, case. Oh, I've got one more special yeah. one because this is specific to the area in which you live around the country. Jenny uh, Bowdage says ducted air conditioning. If you live in Queensland, it's a must, which is correct, all right? It gets very sticky up there. Come further south, we're about split systems and, um, yeah. So it is – it's very important uh, – if we're an investor, that the land, landlord thinks about how to maximise that and make the tenants feel comfortable. How funny is it like as technology progresses and costs of things come down, you know, what was once a luxury is now a necessity in life? Yeah, and I walked into a house the other day as an investment and there was literally a split system in every bedroom and the lounge and the kitchen. Why didn't they freaking just duck the bastard? So, <laughs> there's five split systems. Jeez. Well, I guess you've, you've, they've got a, 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 a system with five zones. Correct. <laughs> All right, Nate, bump us out of this crap. Let's get on with the rest of the show. John, before we move on to the other questions, we've got a question coming up about uh, super funds and LMI and how to negotiate an offer on a house, which I want to dig into that. But you had an experience that uh, I want you to share because you wanted to share it as well. You and Amy, 
went to a financial advisor the other day. We did. What yes. the hell? Yeah. What are you doing, mate? Well, uh, and it was on the back of having a conversation with one of our preferred panellists. Um, say his name. Yeah, yeah, whatever. The, uh, the great James Millard. From Sufficient Funds. Yes. And he was actually the co-host of last week's episode. Was he? Yes. There you go. So we were talking about a, a mutual client and I'm sitting there f- sort of half listening but also thinking, hang on a minute, I wouldn't mind having a meeting with you. Um, I, I think I'm – well, I think Amy and I are both confident about our finances and our future and everything else but it was more to the point of sitting down and having someone – outside of our life, look in and, and add some insight to it. If we only pick up one thing, fantastic. If we, uh, if we pick up five, great. But it also, and that's the first reason, but the second reason was to ensure that we main or stay on the same page mm. uh, because doing what I do, I'm often leading the charge and Amy's full support. Um, so... Having a financial advisor for us as value allows us to stay on the same page ongoing. Now, that whether that be quarterly, um, annually, whatever it might be, we know that those there's those check-in points. So, it, and this is the whole thing. Like, it's not about I want an extra half a percent return and I want the best fund. Mm. All that crap takes care of itself. This is about making sure head office – you know, yeah. Amy and John, head office is functioning at the best that head office can function at. Correct. So, what was the kind of outcomes? Well, we learnt nothing and we're not going back. <laughs> no. no. Um, look, we're, we're continuing the journey. Yeah, right. We're, we're actually walked away from that first meeting quite pumped about really? the fact that, yeah, okay, we're on the same page. We're communicating more about it. Not that we weren't, mm. but- uh, yeah, it's it's. A- but do you find if there's a third party in the room, you can actually say stuff with a little bit? It's just different. Oh, absolutely, and you get to hear each individual's point of view, mm. um, and and also James is is strong enough to not say, "Oh, well, you guys already know that, so we won't cover that." Well, like he dots every I and crosses every T, so. That we might already know some of it, but he's not taking that for granted. So, are you doing any other type of like investing stuff? Because you've got a bit of property. Mm. Like, is there thought that we need to diversify your wealth a little bit? Or because you yeah. I, like, I drove past the house the other day. I think the first story's built. Like, so you can't be doing too much until that's settled. No, that's right. Um, yeah, look, there was definitely a, a conversation that without getting too personal, was... Uh, no, I get personal. We no. don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Amy might listen to this. No, she won't. Um, <laughs> putting more of an emphasis on super. Right. So uh, the non-negotiable was to, to max out super. Yeah, okay. Mm. And you just, yeah. All right, fair enough. Yeah. Well, there you go. James Millard and the team at Sufficient Funds. A lot of you people have, as I said last episode, uh, used James. So that was a interesting, good tie-in. So yeah, thanks so for sharing. Don't send me any more invoices, James, after yeah. that plug. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What have we got here? Um, I want to talk about this question because it shats me to tears. Fior Anna says, how to negotiate an offer on a house. Now, what do you do, John? Because these... 
I saw in the Facebook group a couple of weeks ago, someone was like, oh, I'm trying to buy a house and they did this submit your best and final offer in or something like that. Like it's just a duck auction almost mm. or it, it's weird. So what is the most, I don't know, favorable way to yeah. negotiate on a house if it isn't an auction? Yeah, well, I think the first part is establishing what type of sale is it. Is it private treaty? Is it best and final offers by a certain date or time? Um, I think depends on the market they're in. But the first thing I would say is understand what something's worth in the area. And that's looking to tr- uh, looking at trends to see in the last three months what uh, houses that are similar that you're looking at has sold for. So that's uh, that's a knowledge education thing to know that you're not going to pay massive overs for something because you've seen the similar trend. Uh, we've got to know also when to walk away. Once we've got that knowledge of price point, we know that we can walk away and we'll find something else next week. Now, in a heated market, often that's very hard to do because we might have been unsuccessful 12 times prior and we just want to get this thing sorted and and get on with our life. So we've got to remain disciplined um, to, to walk away but also know that in a heated market, if we've got heated competition, that if we pay 5K or 10K more, that in the end it it probably won't make too much of a difference to secure something. Uh, And then the other tip that I would have there is to start low. We don't want to go in and and give our max price right up. Okay, so if there was a house... um and they put the dumb range like between 750 and 820. And they're like, all right, yep. we're accepting first and final offers. Yeah. Come on, children, <laughs> bring your offer in first and final. Yeah. Like, you know, what are you offering? Are yeah, you going- so I think you've got to understand the heat of the market. Mm. So in a hot market, offering 730s, you'll probably get ignored. So you've got to go up to the more of the top and go, look, you put this as the range up to 820, what about 800? If you want to sell the bastard, let me know and I'll buy it. Yeah, I think, again, understanding what you think it's worth. If you think it's worth 820, mm. right, and they're usually pitching it higher than it's actually worth. Yeah, but exactly. Let's say it's worth 800, but they're pitching at 750 to 820. <laughs> I just got in trouble for um, having my laptop on speaker. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah. Who, who gave you that? What, the laptop? No, the trouble. Well, you looked at me when it beeped. Your eyes gave me trouble. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I was trying to do my life over here. All right, so yeah, so in a in a flat market, which some of you might never experienced before, they wouldn't be doing this crap in a flat market, though. Is that the uh, weird part about it? Well, no one wants to pay too much for something. Mm. So I think understanding. What market we're in is the first part of it, mm. but in a in a flat market, we've we've got the position of power, no doubt about that. Mm. But in a heated market, if it's seven fifty to eight twenty, and we think it's worth eight hundred, then we might come in at seven seventy, right? Just to get the ball rolling. And I don't mind being the first person to put an offer in because a lot of times, good agents will come back to you every time. And they'll respect the courage you showed by putting in their first offer. Okay. So, if it was a first and final situation, for example, or they're like, we're accepting all offers. Yeah. Um, could you say to the agent, look, I'm happy to put in 780. Yes. 
um, just come back to me if it doesn't meet the mark or something like that. Yeah. But the agent has an obligation to take that offer to the vendor. Unless they're saying best and finals by this period. Right, right. So if you go and say, right, your best and final is 780 mm. and I come in and my best and final is 782, it's mine. No more negotiation. Right. Yeah, and this is, oh, gosh. I just could not think of anything worse trying to buy a house in a hot market. Mm. Like it's just. Yeah, and that's probably why a lot of people outsource it mm. because the headache's involved. And I was chatting to someone today who's been looking for three months and has, it's done their head in to the point where they'll end up making the wrong decision. Mm. But, yeah. Well, like I, t- I told you the other day, like I actually want to get this chick on the podcast. She is the real estate agent that I had a look at that house up at Elibana. Mm. And it was fantastic, like real switched on agent. Like she, we went to the open, there was, you know, a million people there. And I walked down and said, oh, it looks like you've probably sold a house. She's like, yeah. yeah. And she basically said, I just don't dick around with people. Yeah. We do an open on the Friday, the Saturday and the Sunday, three days running. Mm. Offers in on Monday, yeah, and we just sell it. Yeah, and the the problem with that, for, I liked it from the agent's point of view. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The problem that for the everyday person who's doing it once in their life mm. or once every ten years, and I spoke to someone today about this, mm. is that's not their personality. No, they can't get their head around that. So I, I don't operate that way. So I can't get that done in three days. Sorry. So if that's not you, how do you attack that? Can I like, so we, we've recently done the episode and you can have a look at it in the feed, everyone. Uh, we did the Q&A with Emily Wallace about buyer's advocate. Mm. Like, can I pay someone? Like, I'll do the research, but I want you to just go and negotiate it for me. Yeah. And that we offer that service right. personally, a negotiation fee almost. Yeah. Um, wow. Which is a cheaper alternative for someone who doesn't want to pay full tote odds for a mm. BA, but it also, they want to stay involved on the ground. Um, yeah. But take that uh, end process out of it. Yeah, I mean, the question is how to negotiate an offer on a house. The answer is with great difficulty. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I mean, that doesn't help, right? But this is the climate we're in. Yeah, but I think a few tips and tricks that can help you allows you to navigate around it a bit better mm. than most. Yeah. And I wonder if it's asking the real estate agent. And because a lot of these times when you're looking for a home in the same area, you know the agent, they know you because you've been to two other places and, oh, hey, it's me again. Yeah, yeah. they kind of know. Like if you're a serious buyer, they will know that you're a serious buyer. Yeah. And you'd hope there's some goodwill because the agent wants to sell the house mm. and the difference of $10,000 isn't moving the agent's commission needle that much. No, that's So, right. you would think an agent with a bit of goodwill, but this is the problem as a buyer- well, you can't control if the agent's a dirtbag or not. No, and and a good question. And Queensland's a bit of an interesting one because they don't like to advertise prices too much. And, wow. And but a one line that I use occasionally is, "What will buy this property? Mm. What price will buy this property?" Yeah. And any agent worth their weight in gold will always say over what they're mm. <laughs> what they're wanting. But at least it. From their end, like you're serious, you're asking that hard hitting question. When I buy like secondhand cars on like Gumtree and Marketplace, yes. you know, if it's $7,000 or something like that, I'll write, 
Oh, if I rock up with five grand, am I wasting your time? Yeah. <laughs> well, I nearly got boxed in at a, a car park yesterday by a guy who just bought a car. <laughs> Could not believe it. <laughs> we can talk about that later. Uh, I'll tell everyone my negotiation tactics in more detail. All right, let's have a look here. Yeah, thanks for your... Um, do you see any other questions that we might want to finish on there, John? This one from Jackie is a good one, Jackie Aldis. Mm-hmm. How to involve kids in your money without telling them too much about your finances? Do you just talk concepts? Mummy and daddy, when they love each other, they hug. <laughs> and that's how yeah. your baby brother was born. No, <laughs> yes, you do talk concepts. You talk to them about the value of money yeah. and exchanging time for money. I think that's the first important part of it. And how different jobs vary. Uh, and how some people may work harder for the same amount of money in the same amount of time, if that makes sense. So, and how's that come about? Well, maybe some have developed a better education or were better with people or just had a niche in their industry. Like, depending on the age of the kid, obviously, we're having different conversations. But with uh, our eldest at the moment, who's just about to turn 13, it fully understands that transaction of um, time for money, how much our holidays might cost us. And I think the positive affirmation around money is the key here. We never say we can't afford that, right, because it sends a bad connotation to their minds about money's actually quite evil, right. Or um, So but letting them, if we're giving them some pocket money, uh, letting them spend freely to learn the process, the value of money is really important and not um, putting them into a, a corner and not allow them to experience money. Mm. Yeah, I, I, you know, if I have little Glennies, little Glennie Juniors and Glennettes, um, look, out. look out, I would be more like, you know, because it's got to be age appropriate. So maybe someone who's 10 or 11 or my niece and nephews, I'd be like, okay, see this, you know. It was in an example the other day, you know, Jeffrey messaged me. He's like, do you have a green screen? Because he does these yeah. cool animations and he's done these uh, stop frame animations for yeah. years on his iPad. Yeah. And I really want to encourage him to make a YouTube channel and I go, oh, I'll send you a link to one to buy. Anyway, so I had a look at Jay and there was a green screen and I'm like, oh, stuff it. What's the local one? So I just bought it, click and collect, tell Lauren to go and drive you there and pick up. And then I'm like, oh, bloody, there's a twin brother. And then I'm like, James, what do you want? <laughs> and he goes, I want bloody, um, can I maybe get two funky pops and a Roblox card? Ah, uh, Roblox. <laughs> Roblox, sorry. Yeah. See, that's how yeah. not cool I am. And then I'm looking at, and he sends me this Fruit Loops thing at JV Hi-Fi. And I'm just like, oh, stuff this. So I just text Lauren and put $150 in a bank account. I said, take, <laughs> take James to <laughs> JV. But I think what I'll do is on that age appropriate, oh, you know, that was five hours of Glenn's time at work mm. that I traded for that yeah. money. Yeah. And we just come home from the um, charity bike ride and we talked about giving and we talked about how much money we spent and what that equated to in time. Um, hours working exactly to your point. Um, But as I was saying before for Jackie, what's the downside of telling them too much about your finances? Is it through fear of them telling other families 
Um, because if it is, we, we've just got to sit down and say that everything we talk about for our own personal situation is confidential, which means doesn't get told to anyone else. But the oh, so you like make that clear? Yeah, yeah. Um, because yeah, it's personal. But like, is there anything worse than a kid who knows their parents are rich and they get what they want? Like, there's nothing worse than that, is there? Yeah, but you're teaching concepts, so you would you. If- no, but that's what that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. you've. Instead of being like, oh, we're rich. We buy whatever we want. Like yeah. it just it would rub off on the kids thinking they're better than anyone else. Yeah, but that that comes back to the conversations and the, the wording that you're using around your kids yeah. in respect to money. Like we we use the word rich in respect to um, we're rich with health, Yeah, right? And we're rich in our own mind, not, not rich in the bank account mm. s- scenario. But they ask questions as a result of all that to say, well, how much did you pay for this house like that we bought? How much will it be worth when it's built? Mm. Right? Those sort of things we, are great questions to get an understanding. They wouldn't really know what that means in real life and mm. how much it takes to actually earn that sort of stuff. But it's just I don't have a problem talking to them too much about finances, but it's really the wording that goes with it. Mm. Yeah, it's wild. I just think like there's just nothing worse than when, you know, people think they're rich and act better than anyone else. Correct. Like it's just – that's why like if I go to Bali, I can't stand it because you go to Kuta, Mm. you've got half these Aussie bogans treating the Indonesian people like Like crap. crap, And I'm just like it's disgusting. Yeah. it's So – and you just don't want to breed that. No. I'd imagine. No. No, it's a gratitude conversation as well, isn't it? Yeah. All right. In wrapping up, uh, Bonley asked industry super fund or self-nominated fund. You can use whatever fund you want. Um, the industry super funds, you know, CBUS as an example, they they might invest some of their members' money in building projects. But if I'm in building and construction and there's a construction downturn, would I want my income to be possibly reduced and lost and my super balance to be lost as well. I don't know. You can answer that. But there isn't a, you know, super funds buy shares in different companies. I can't rock up and buy CBA shares as a plumber and CBA shares as an yeah. office manager. This is one share. So, it it kind of, the answer is you can choose whatever fund you want mm. in the main. Uh, there's still some arrangements like uh, university Universities in New South Wales, I think if you're employed by the university, you've got a choice of Unisuper or Unisuper. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, anyway, it's it really, it doesn't actually matter. Mm. Find a fund, call them, vibe them out. Yeah. Um, you know, I've covered that in, uh, in great detail in the book anyway. Look, we might leave it there. Uh, there was a question, I want to know more about LMI. How much is it usually? Well, it depends. Speak to your mortgage broker because John, lenders mortgage insurance, it can cost different depending on which bank or lender you go with, right? Yeah, and even the experience or or loyalty you've shown to them, would you believe? So, Mm. I've had clients that have paid less LMI than the next person because they'd been with them and they'd rewarded them for that. So, it's a daily change um, and very much case dependent. But it might be like, gosh, for a... 800,000 purchase and you've got a 10% deposit, it, if I said 15 to 20 grand, I wouldn't be 
struck off the podcast world to nah. be completely unreasonable. No, nah, it should be less. Yeah, less so than that, but yeah, yeah, and that, and that's why this is where you need to work closely with a good mortgage broker because if you're just going to bank land, you've got one option, and that's the bank land that you walked into. And guess what? They've got one LMI option only. Yeah. So it's just another reason if you're in LMI territory, it's best to go to a mortgage broker. All right. See ya. See ya. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports A21, a charity focused on abolishing slavery and human trafficking all over the world. Check out a21.org.au for more info. If you would like some other giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to thelifeyoucansave.org.au. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. So yeah, I I rocked up to Woolworths the other day and I'm like, that's bloody John Pigeon walking to the car with his little shopping. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to go around and park next to him and beat the horn and all that. So I, where it was parked, there was this weird trolley kind of parked in the spot. So I've kind of come in at this weird angle and I'm in this new car and- Debatable. It was, <laughs> it was very secondhand. <laughs> And um, yeah, he he didn't realise it was I. And could I say to mm. our lovely listeners out there that you are no more than two inches from my door? I'll forgive you if you said three. <laughs> so I was about to barrel this car next to me that's <laughs> angled in t- towards my driver's side door and then I look up and there's this smiling bald head looking at me. <laughs> Shaved head, mate. <laughs> Shaved. So, yeah, so that car, this is, I like negotiating. It's a bit of a sport. And yes. I I go, like, so when, like, I'm talking with my team about pay and all that, I go easy on them. Like, I don't mm. turn up mm. because I want to look after. I don't want to make them feel guilty that yeah. I'm trying to screw them because, and I'm not really trying to screw anyone. I just want a good deal like the next person, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it was a Mitsubishi Outlander. 2.4 litre all-wheel drive. I noticed it two inches from me. Yeah. <laughs> so, right. I did see it. <laughs> it was the first time I'd driven it, <laughs> like in a weird car park. And it was on for 15 or nearest offer. And um, he, I said, oh, what would you take? <laughs> and he goes, oh, I was probably hoping 14. And I'm like, what about 12? <laughs> Hope he's listening. <laughs> I gave him a bottle of red, actually. Did you? Yeah. On you. Um, so we we came to a, a good deal. Twelve two. No, that no, was twelve. <laughs> it was twelve. Oh, but uh, for everyone listening, and I wasn't going to bring it up, but John mentioned it in the episode mm. that I had this other car. I, um, you know, John, this is funny. Like, 
if you've got a bit of money and all your needs are met, you need to be living on purpose to help other people. Yes. And and you do that in droves. Yeah. And, you know, I, I saw a need, a, a family needed a new car. Mm. They don't have a car at the moment. And I bought them a car. It's unbelievable. Yeah. So anyway, I actually want to get someone on the podcast to talk about housing, like in a real way, like how do we get the price of housing down? Mm. And Labor government? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) No. Look, I – yeah, go on. Yeah, well, they were saying, um, you know, someone said like, oh, you should – all landlords should charge their tenants $20 less to help out and we won't get into it now. And I, I basically said, look, I probably wouldn't do that. Uh, you know, I, you know, it's a double, you know, my property's got people earning well over 100 grand per house. Me lowering the rent by $20 a week mm. isn't changing the housing affordability crisis. You know what I mean? Like, no, and, and it's just the same as a business owner saying, well, I'm going to drop my Price by twenty dollars because yeah, the and, cost of living's too high. And sometimes when we talk about um, homes and like, I would probably say if you're a socialist, you wouldn't get a lot out of the My Millennial Property podcast. Nothing, and that's okay. You don't have to. No, but I actually got this is how crazy the rental market is. Right, following that, just yesterday, I got an email for the property up here. Um, and also I'd, I'd make no apologies for having investment properties. I'll, mm. you know, I'll play to the rules and look after people and, yeah. you know, buy families cars and donate money. I don't take my money, whatever. But I got an email. Oh, hey, Glenn, just reviewed the property. We think you should increase the rent 50 to $70 a week. Wow. And I'm like, nope, I'm not rocking up mm. to my tenant and saying, it's an extra seventy dollars a week. It's yeah. an extra fifty dollars a week. Just not doing it. Yeah, it's a big jump. Like, how, like it's not really changing my world. No. No, that's um, it's an interesting one, and because but, of vacancy, but what I did say, I said, look, that because it's dirty, Mike. They're building a house and all that. You know, I'd sent Mike the message. I'm like, hey, just got this, and we hadn't really touched the rent in over two years. Yeah, I said. 20 bucks, he's like, yeah, right, whatever. Mm. And they're, they'll be out within a year. Yeah. I just said to the real estate, I said, we will um, just take it $20. They've agreed to it, you know, give them a two-month notice or whatever, like whatever, don't mm. don't heaps care. Um, but I'm just not doing 50 to $70 no. a week. And I said, when they move out within the year or so, we'll just see what the market rate is then. Yeah. And we'll make a call. So. Yeah, no, there's an affordability crisis in terms of being able to afford rent because the vacancy rates are so mm. low because there's not enough houses, simple as that. Yeah, but the government, it just annoys me, state and federal. Like mm. we need to open more land, but we need yeah. the infrastructure. Well, and, and a lot of land that's being constructed by developers, and we had um, Andrew Welsh on uh, My or Property who's a developer in Melbourne. Right. And he was talking about You talk to me like I know him. Well, he's he's a big deal in developing world. Right. Um, Young fella. Right. Um, But in any case, he he said, look, we can develop land as quick as 
the councils can keep up, but the councils just can't keep up because of they restrict sewer, they restricting um, yeah, but that's services, infrastructure, and, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. But he said that's that's what's stopping all of this. Is it's not the developers, it's the councils. Mm. Yeah, but I mean, we, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, you know, because you were away, I talked with Victoria Devine. She did a guest host as well, like tax reform, mm. like. I actually think, you know, either negative gearing needs to be tweaked slightly or once you've got your second or third property, you have to put more of a deposit in or there's a higher or there has to be something. And this is me saying this stuff, not as a socialist, Mm. as a I believe in the free market, but people need to be able to have the chance to get ahead and it's just not happening. Yeah, well- yeah, it's a story for another day. It is. But but yeah. Within all that, you know, when we talk about housing and rent and all that stuff, people get so enraged. Mm. And I'll say it again, I've said it before, be enraged, double down on your own convictions. You know, our comments are just worth what you paid for them. Yeah. If you want a podcast host that does – a money podcast host that isn't good with money and doesn't have some money – this is not the podcast for you. Mm. And, you know, I've, you know, the the amount of crap and money that I give away and, you know, the cars and all that stuff yeah. that most people don't know, I can't tell most people because it'd give them a freaking heart attack. Yeah. No, that's true. And and I I know exactly where you're coming from. But I think generally in society we'd say that most people, or not most, but a lot of people don't donate money. No, and but that's a, I'll always be a. That's my financial plan: be a generous giver, hmm. live on less than I earn, invest the rest. Yeah, like in actually that order. That's right. But the concept is foreign to a lot of people. Yeah, because the other the flip side of that is invest as much as you can for you. Yeah, still try and live off less than you earn. Oh, if there's anything left over, I might donate. Yeah, because it's all about the individual. Yeah. To begin with, isn't it? So, but- like, I honestly, you know, how old am I? Mid to late 30s. Yes. Um, let's say 40 years, mm. I'm out of here, baby. Yeah. 50 years, I'm done on this planet. Yeah. I don't need the freaking money. I've got no, heaps of it. Don't take it so, I may as well start giving it away. Yeah. Anyway, speaking All right, of leaving. Go. Okay, love you. Yeah. All right, bye-bye. See you. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 